Chapter Four of the Loudwater Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Loudwater Mystery by Edgar Jepson. Chapter Four. For a good three minutes after the departure of William Roper, the Lord Loudwater walked up and down the smoking room. His redly glinting eyes still rolled in a terrifying fashion, and still every few seconds he snapped his fingers in the throes of an effort to make up his raging mind whether to begin by an attack on his wife or on Colonel Gray. He could not remember ever having been so angry in his life, and now and again his red eyes saw red. Then of a sudden he made up his mind that he was at the moment angrier with Colonel Gray. He would deal with him first. Olivia could wait. He hurried out to the stables and bellowed for a horse with such violence that two startled grooms saddled one for him in a little more than a minute. He made no attempt to think what he would say to Colonel Gray. He was too angry. He galloped the two miles to the cart and horse at Bellingham, where Colonel Gray was staying, in order to restore his health and to fish. At the door of the inn he bellowed, Ostler, Ostler! Then, without waiting to see whether an ostler came, he threw the reins on his horse's neck, left it to its own devices, strode into the tap-room, and bellowed to the affrighted landlady, Mrs. Turnbull, to take him straight to Colonel Gray. Trembling, she led him upstairs to Gray's sitting-room on the first floor. But before she could knock, he opened the door, bounced through it, and slammed it. Gray was sitting at the other side of the table, looking through a book of flies. He appeared to be quite unmoved by the sudden entry of the infuriated nobleman, or by his raucous bellow. "'So here you are, you infernal scoundrel!' He looked at him with a cold, distasteful eye, and said in a clear, very unpleasant voice, another time, knock before you come into my room. Lord Loudwater had not expected to be received in this fashion. Dimly he had seen Gray cowering. He paused, then said less loudly, knock, hey, knock, knock at the door of an infernal scoundrel like you. His voice began to gather volume again. Likely I should take the trouble. I know all about your scoundrelly game. Colonel Gray remembered that Olivia had said that she proposed to deny the kiss, and his course was quite clear to him. I don't know whether you're drunk or mad, he said in a quiet, contemptuous voice. This was not what Lord Loudwater had expected, but Gray was a strong believer in the theory that the attacker has the advantage, and he had an even stronger belief that an enemy in fury is far less dangerous than an enemy calm. "'You're lying. You know I'm neither,' bellowed Lord Loudwater. "'You kissed Olivia, Lady Loudwater, in the Eastwood. You know you did. You were seen doing it.' "'You're raving, man,' said Colonel Gray quietly, in a yet more unpleasant tone. The interview was not going as Lord Loudwater had seen it. He had to swallow violently before he could say, you were seen doing it, seen by one of my gamekeepers. You must have paid him to say so, said Colonel Gray, with quiet conviction. Lord Loudwater 
was a little staggered by the accusation. He gasped and stuttered, "'Damn your impudence! Paid to say it?' "'Yes, paid,' said Colonel Gray, without raising his voice. "'You happened to hear that we had tea in the pavilion in the wood, probably from Lady Loudwater herself, and you made up this stupid lie and paid your gamekeeper to tell it in order to score off her. It's exactly the dog's trick a bullying ruffian like you would play on a woman. Dog's trick? Me? stammered Lord Loudwater, gasping. He was used to saying things of this kind to other people, not to have them said to him. Yes, you. You know that you're a wretched bully and cad, said Colonel Grey, with just a little more warmth in his tone. Had Lord Loudwater's belief that William Roper had told him the truth about the kiss been weaker, it might have been shaken by the whole-hearted thoroughness of Gray's attack. But William Roper had impressed that belief on him deeply. He was sure that Gray had kissed Lady Loudwater. The certainty spurred him to a fresh effort, and he cried, "'It's no good you trying to humbug me, not at all. I've got evidence, plenty of evidence, and I'm going to act on it, too. I'm going to hound you out of the army and that jade of a wife of mine out of decent society.' Do you think, because I don't spend four or five months every year in that rotten hole London, I haven't got any influence? Hey, if you do, you're damn well wrong. I've got more than enough twice over to clear a scoundrel like you out of the army. Don't talk absurd nonsense, said Gray calmly. Nonsense? Hey, absurd nonsense, howled Lord Loudwater, on a new note of exasperation. Yes, nonsense. A disreputable cad like you can't hurt me in any way, and well you know it, said Gray, with painstaking distinctness. Not hurt you? Hey, I can't hurt the correspondent in a divorce case, hey, said Lord Loudwater, rather breathlessly. As if a man who has abused and bullied his wife as you have could get a divorce, said Gray. He laughed a gentle, contemptuous laugh, galling beyond words. It galled Lord Loudwater surely enough, he snapped his fingers four times and gibbered. "'I'll tell you what it is. I've had enough of your manners,' said Gray. "'What you want is a lesson. And if I hear you've been bullying Lady Loudwater about this simple matter of my having tea with her, I'll give it to you, with a horsewhip.' "'You'll give me a lesson, you?' whispered Lord Loudwater, and he danced a little frantically. "'Yes, I'll give you the soundest thrashing.' any man hereabouts has had for the last twenty years. If I have to begin by knocking your ugly head off your shoulder, said Gray, raising his clear voice, so that for the first time Mrs. Turnbull, trembling but thrilled on the landing, heard what was being said. The enunciation of Lord Loudwater had been thick. His words had been slurred. You, you thrash me, he howled. Yes, me. Now get out. Lord Loudwater gnashed his teeth at him and again snapped his fingers. He burned to rush round the table and hammer the life out of Gray, but he could not do it. Violent words, not violent deeds, were his accomplishment. Moreover, there was something daunting in Gray's cold and steady eye. He snapped his fingers again, and pouring out a stream of furious abuse, turned to the door and flung out of it. Mrs. Turnbull scuttled aside into Gray's bedroom. Halfway down the stairs, Lord Loudwater paused to bellow. I'll ruin you yet, you scoundrel. Mark my word. 
I will hound you out of the army. He flung out of the house and found that the ostler had taken his horse round to the stable, removed its bridle, and given it a feed of corn. He cursed him heartily. Gray rose, shut the door, and laughed gently. Then he frowned. Of a sudden he perceived that, natural as had been his manner of dealing with Lord Loudwater, he had handled him badly. At least it was possible that he had handled him badly. It would have been wiser, perhaps, to have been suave and firm rather than firm and provoking. But it was not likely that suavity would have been of much use. The brute would probably have regarded it as weakness. But for Olivia's sake, he ought probably to have tried to soothe him. As it was, the brute had gone raging off and would vent his fury on her. What had he better do? He was not long perceiving that there was nothing that he could do. The natural thing was to go to the castle and prevent her husband, by force if need be, from abusing and bullying Olivia. That was what his strongest instincts bade him do. It was quite impossible. It would compromise her beyond repair. He had done her harm enough by his impulsive indiscretion in the wood. His face slowly settled into a set scowl as he cudgeled his brain to find the way of coming effectually to her help. It seemed a vain effort, but a way had to be found. Lord Loudwater galloped halfway to the castle in a furious haste to punish Olivia for allowing Grey to make love to her, and even more for the contemptuous way in which Grey had treated him. He had hopes also of bullying her into a confession of the truth of William Roper's story. But Grey had excited him to a height of fury at which not even he could remain without exhaustion. In a reaction, he reined in his horse to a canter, then to a trot, and then to a walk. He found that he was feeling tired. He continued, however, to chafe at his injuries, but with less vehemence, and he was still resolved to make a strong effort to draw the confession from Olivia. On reaching the castle, he did not go to her at once. He sat down in an easy chair in his smoking-room and drank two whiskies and sodas. In the background of Olivia's mind, meditating pleasantly on her pleasant afternoon, there had been a patient and resigned expectation that presently her conscience would begin to reproach her for allowing Gray to make love to her. But the minutes slipped by, and she did not begin to feel that she had been wicked. The meditation remained pleasant. At last she realized suddenly that she was not going to feel wicked. She was surprised and even a trifle horror-stricken by her insensibility. Then, fairly faced by it, she came to the conclusion that, in a woman cursed with such a brute of a husband, such insensibility was not only natural, it was even proper. Her woman's craving to be loved and to love was the strongest of her emotions, and it had gone unsatisfied for so long. Her husband had killed, or rather extirpated, her fondness for him before they had been married a month. She was inclined to believe that she had never really loved him at all. He had certainly ceased to love her before they had been married a fortnight, if indeed he had ever loved her at all. She had no child. She was an orphan without sisters or brothers. Her husband let her see but little of the friends who were fond of her. 
she began to suspect that her conscience did not reproach her because she had merely acted on her natural right to love and be loved. This conclusion brought her mind again to the consideration of Anthony Gray, and again she let her thoughts dwell on him. The gong, informing her that it was time to dress for dinner, interrupted this pleasant occupation. She had her bath, put herself into the hands of her maid, Elizabeth Twitcher, and resumed her meditation. She was at once so deeply absorbed in it that she did not observe her maid's sullen and depressed air. She was presently interrupted again, and in a manner far more violent and startling than the summons of the gong. The door was jerked open, and her refreshed husband strode into the room. "'I know all about your little game, madam,' he cried. "'You've been letting that blackguard Gray make love to you. You kissed him in the East Wood this afternoon.' The mysterious smile faded from the face of Olivia, and an expression of the most natural astonishment took its place. "'I sometimes think that you are quite mad, Egbert,' she said in her slow, musical voice. Elizabeth Twitcher continued her deft manipulation of a thick strand of hair without any change in her sullen and depressed air. To all seeming, she was uninterested or deaf. Lord Loudwater had expected, in the face of Olivia's gentleness, to have to work himself up to a proper height of indignant fury by degrees. The echo of Gray's accusation from the mouth of his wife raised him to it, on the instant and without effort. "'Don't lie to me,' he bellowed. "'It's no good, whatever. I tell you, I know.' Olivia was surprised to find herself wholly free from her old fear of him. The fact that she was in love with Gray and he with her had already worked a change in her. These were the only things in the world of any real importance. That clear knowledge gave her a new confidence and a new strength. Her husband had been able to frighten her nearly out of her wits. Now he could not, and she could use them. "'I'm not lying at all. I really do believe you're mad, often,' she said very distinctly. Once more Lord Loudwater was compelled to grind his teeth. Then he laughed a harsh, barking laugh and cried, "'It's no good. I've just had a short interview with that scoundrel Gray, and I put the fear of God into him. I can tell you, I made him admit that you kissed him in the East Wood. For a breath, Olivia was taken back. Then she perceived clearly that it was a lie. He could not put the fear of God into Gray. Besides, Gray had kissed her, not she him. It's you who are lying, she said quickly and with spirit. How could Colonel Gray admit a thing that never happened? Lord Loudwater perceived that it was going to be harder to wring the confession from her than he had expected checked he paused then elizabeth twitcher caught his attention here you clear out he said elizabeth twitcher caught her mistress's eye in the glass olivia made no sign i can't leave her ladyship's hair in this state your lordship said elizabeth twitcher with sullen firmness you'll do as you're told and clear out bellowed his lordship i don't want to be half an hour late for dinner said olivia accepting the diversion and ready to make the most of it. Elizabeth Twitcher looked at Lord Loudwater, saw more clearly than ever his likeness to the loathed James Hutchins, and made up her mind 
to do nothing that he bade her do. She went on dressing her mistress's hair sullenly. "'Are you going, or am I going to throw you out of the room?' cried Lord Loudwater, in a blustering voice. "'Don't be silly, Egbert,' said Olivia sharply. From the height of her new emotional experience, she felt that her husband was merely a noisy, obnoxious boy. This was indeed quite plain to her. She felt years older than he, and very much wiser. Lord Loudwater, with a quite unusual glimmer of intelligence, perceived that bringing Elizabeth Twitcher into the matter had been a mistake. It had weakened his main action. In a less violent but more malevolent voice, he said, "'Silly, hey? I'll show you all about that, you little jade. You clear out of this first thing tomorrow morning. My lawyers will settle your hash for you. I'll deal with that blackguard gray myself. I'll hound him out of the army inside of a month. Perhaps it will be a consolation to you to know that you've done him in as well as yourself.' He turned on his heel, left the room with a positively melodramatic stride, and slammed the door behind him. Olivia was stricken by a sudden panic. She had lost all fear of her husband as far as she herself was concerned. He had become a mere offensive windbag. She did not care whether he did or did not try to divorce her. Even on the terms of so great a scandal, it would be a cheap deliverance. But Anthony was another matter. She could not bear that he should be ruined on her account. It was intolerable not to be thought of. She must find some way of preventing it. She began to cudgel her brain for that way of preventing it, but in vain. She could devise no plan. The more she considered the matter, the worse it grew. She could not bear to be associated in Anthony's mind with disaster. She desired most keenly to stand for everything that was pleasant and delightful in his life. She would not let her brute of a husband spoil both their lives. He had already spoiled enough of hers. After his injunction to her, to leave the castle first thing next morning, she took it that they would hardly dine together, and told Elizabeth Twitcher to tell Wilkins to serve her dinner in her boudoir. Also, she refused to put on an evening gown, saying that the peignoir she was wearing was more comfortable on such a hot night. Last of all, she told her to pack some of her clothes that night. Elizabeth Twitcher stirred somewhat out of her brooding on her own troubles by this trouble of her mistress, looked at her thoughtfully, and said, "'I shouldn't go, my lady. It'll look as if you agreed with what his lordship said, and it's only William Roper as has been telling these lies. He asked to see his lordship about something very particular before his lordship went out, and who's going to pay any heed to William Roper?' "'William Roper? Who is William Roper? What kind of man is he?' said Olivia quickly. He's an under-gamekeeper, milady, and the biggest little beast on the estate. Everybody hates William Roper, said Elizabeth with conviction. This was satisfactory as far as it went. The worse her husband's evidence was, the freer it left her to take her own course of action. But it was no great comfort, for she was but little concerned about the harm he could do her. Indeed, she was only concerned about the harm he could do Anthony. She returned to her search for a method of preventing that harm during her dinner, and after her dinner she continued that search without any success. 
This injury to Antony, for her the central fact of the situation, weighed on her spirit more and more heavily. The longer she pondered it, the more harassed she grew. The most fantastic schemes for balking her husband and saving Antony came thronging into her mind. She rose and walked restlessly up and down the room, working herself into a veritable fever. Mr. Manley, having dealt with the letters which had come by the five o'clock post, read half a dozen chapters of the last published novel of Artsybachev, with the pleasure he never failed to draw from the works of that author. Then he dressed and set forth, in a very cheerful spirit, to dine with Helena Truslove. His cheerful expectations were wholly fulfilled. She had divined that he was endowed not only with a romantic spirit, but with a hearty and discriminating appetite, and was careful to give him good food and wine, and plenty of both. With his coffee, he smoked one of Lord Loudwater's favorite cigars. Expanding naturally, he talked with spirit and intelligence during dinner, and made love to her after dinner with even more spirit and intelligence. As a rule, he stayed on the nights he dined with her till a quarter to eleven, but that night she dismissed him at ten o'clock, saying that she was feeling tired and wished to go to bed early. Smoking another of Lord Loudwater's favorite cigars, he walked briskly back to the castle, more firmly convinced than ever that every possible step must be taken to prevent any diminution of the income of a woman of such excellent taste in food and wine. It would be a little short of a crime to discourage the exercise of her fine natural gift for stimulating the genius of a promising dramatist. He was not in the habit of going to bed early, and having put on slippers and an old comfortable coat, he once more turned to the novel by Archibachev. He read two more chapters, smoking a pipe, and then he became aware that he was thirsty. He could have mixed himself a whiskey and soda then and there, for he had both in the cupboard in his sitting-room but he was a stickler for the proprieties. He had drunk red wine, burgundy with his dinner, and port after it, and after red wine, brandy is the proper spirit. There would be brandy in the tantalus in the small dining-room. He went quietly down the stairs. The big hall, lighted by a single electric bulb, was very dim, and he took it that, as was their habit, the servants had already gone to bed. As he came to the bottom of the stairs, the door at the back of the hall opened. James Hutchins came through the doorway and shut the door quietly behind him. Mr. Manley stood still. James Hutchins came very quietly down the hall, saw him, and started. "'Good evening, Hutchins. I thought you'd left us,' said Mr. Manley, in a rather unpleasant tone. "'You may take your oath to it,' said James Hutchins truculently in a much more unpleasant tone than Mr. Manley had used. I just came back to get a box of cigarettes I left in the cupboard of my pantry. I don't want any help in smoking them from anyone here. He opened the library door gently, went quietly through it, and drew it to behind him, leaving Mr. Manley frowning at it. It was a fact that Hutchins carried a packet, which might very well have been cigarettes, but Mr. Manley did not believe his story of his errand. He took it that he was leaving the castle by one of the library windows. Well, 
It was no business of his. At a few minutes past eight the next morning, he was roused from the deep dreamless sleep which follows good food and good wine, well digested, by a loud knocking on his door. It was not the loud, steady, and prolonged knocking which the third housemaid found necessary to wake him. It was more vigorous and more staccato and jerkier. Also, a voice was calling loudly, Mr. Manley, sir, Mr. Manley, Mr. Manley. For all the noise and insistence of the calling, Mr. Manley did not awake quickly. It took him a good minute to realize that he was Herbert Manley, and in bed, and half a minute longer, to gather that the knocking and calling were unusual and uncommonly urgent. He sat up in bed and yawned terrifically. Then he slipped out of bed. The knocking and calling still continued, unlocked the door, and found Holloway, the second footman, on the threshold, looking scared and horror-stricken. "'Please, sir, his lordship's dead,' he cried. "'He's been murdered, stabbed through the heart.'" End of Chapter 4 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas.